Thank you, Steve. Good morning, everybody, and good morning, the other half of the church who's live streaming, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> Let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll take a look at God's word. Lord, um, the songs that we sang this morning just really elevated my heart, my soul, and my, my mind to that beautiful vision we get in Revelation of heaven with angels falling before you and the saints gathered and the holy city Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And Lord, that, that time when sin and death and hell and Satan are all done away with. Lord, it just feels like that's the way the world is supposed to be and we anxiously await its coming. But between now and then, Lord, we will have tribulation. Jesus, you promised us that. And so we pray that you'd grant us the strength to endure. And Lord, I think specifically of the uh, Frederick family, um, recently moved, recently bought a home, uh, just started out, and uh, Paul has lost his job already. And so, Lord, we know that this did not come apart from your hand. It didn't slip past you. You weren't nodding off when uh, this trouble fell on the Frederick family, but Lord, we pray your rich blessing on them. Lord, would you provide for them in an extraordinary way in this time and show them your care. Lord, give them something to tell others about and to, to show how their God re is real and he's involved and he cares. And Father, where our churches this morning, like Ramey said, we're, we're anticipating, looking forward to Chris uh, Crawford's wedding and uh, we just pray, Lord, that that union would be a blessing to them, that they would find great joy in being um, covenanted together like that and joined into one flesh. And, Lord, that you would provide for them years of growth in Christ together as they challenge each other, as they find those areas where each other are weak and fill in those gaps. And, uh, Lord, I just pray that it always also provide them with many years of fruitful ministry uh, to the body of Christ as well as uh, the two join together and uh, make that cord stronger. So we pray for people who are traveling, okay, for me as I'm traveling today, but um, also for everybody who is, is going to be there and then travel back. Lord, give them safe journeys. I pray that uh, the Crawfords' um, honeymoon would be a joyous occasion, and, and we look forward to celebrating with them when they return. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, Holy Spirit, I, I say this often, but if there's any text that we need it, we need your help on this one. Uh, this is one of the most challenging parts of Daniel. Um, and so, Lord, would you come and show us, illuminate the page, make us to understand. Lord, we don't need an angel to fly in. We need you, Holy Spirit, to illuminate our hearts and minds. So be with us now as we open your word. In Christ's name, amen. So in, in college, about 27 years ago, um, uh, I had to write a paper on a poem by Robert Frost called Mending Wall. And if you've never heard it before, it's a beautiful one. It's one of the most quoted uh, Robert Frost poems there is, aside from um, where uh, the path that diverges in the forest. But this one starts with a beautiful phrase. Listen to this. He says, something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen groundswell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. And so what he's, he's talking about this wall, and this wall is a place where these two men meet every spring to set it back up. They, they build this wall together again. And so as they're working, the narrator begins to question that. He says, there where it is, we do not need a wall. He is all pine, and I am all apple orchard. My apples will never cross over and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. But the man on the other side of the wall simply replies, 
good fences make good neighbors. And the way the poem ends is, he says, he will not go behind his father's saying, and he likes having thought of it so well, he says again, good fences make good neighbors. And so as I read the poem, I'm wrestling with it, I'm trying to figure out what is he talking about, what does the wall represent, and who are these men, and, and just wrestling through it. I couldn't get any traction with the thing. And as I was wrestling with it, I noticed that in the book that it's in north of Boston, right before it, he puts a little phrase. Frost gave us a hint. Right before that, he put a note that says, Mending Wall takes up the theme where a tuft of flowers in a boy's will light it down. So I was like, ah, okay, here, now I've got a hint. I'll just go look at a tuft of flowers, and those are saying the same thing. So let me take a look at that one. So The Tuft of Flowers is a poem in another book written earlier, and it's about a man who is hired to go into a field of fresh mown grass and toss the grass, turn it over so that it'll dry in the sun. So as he's working, his mind starts thinking of the man who mowed. And he says, I looked for him behind an aisle of trees. I listened for his whetstone on the breeze. But he had gone his way, the grass all mown. And I must be, as he had been, alone. So he's reaching. He's wanting to connect with this mower. He's thinking, who did this work? But he realizes he's just going to be alone. Well, as he's working, a butterfly catches his eye and distracts him. And he says, uh, as he watches it fly past, he says, but he for turned first and led my eye to look at a tough, tall tuft of flowers beside a brook. A leaping tongue of bloom the scythe had spared beside a reedy brook the scythe had bared. So what he sees is this butterfly kind of causes his eyes to fall on this clump of flowers that the mower avoided, just left him there, this beautiful clump of flowers. And so as he's thinking about that, he says, the mower in the dew had loved them thus by leaving them to flourish, not for us, nor yet to draw one thought of ours to him, but from sheer morning gladness at the brim. So he, he considers the flowers and he's thinking, well, the, the mower didn't leave them for me. He didn't know who was coming or anything. He did it just because he loved the flowers because they were so pretty. And so the poem ends. Uh, you know, he feels this connection to the, to the mower now. He feels this, this common humanity, and the poem ends this way. He said, And feel a spirit kindred to my own, so that henceforth I work no more alone. But glad with him I worked as with his aid, and weary sought at noon with him the shade, and dreaming, as it were, held brotherly speech with one whose thought I had not hoped to reach. Men work together, I told him from the heart, whether they work together or they work apart. And that finally unlocked it for me. The, the picture of the mending wall is these two men working together on a wall that separates them. And so what the picture of this thing is, is, is this shared humanity, this desire to be together and the things that separate us. It's, it's, a, it's a, a drawing of us together. And so it was when I brought those two poems together, which is kind of you know poetic <laughs> that you would do it that way, that's when I began to understand it. And so the, the, um, the, the message really works because it's 20-something years later, and I still remember that. I still remember that, that moment of discovery. So what I want to do this morning as we're looking at, at uh, the end of um, Daniel chapter 9 is I want to do a similar thing. I want to try to draw things together to find what the answer is because these last verses of Daniel are the most contentious, the most disputed, the most overly interpreted, the most divisive verses in the entire book. 
And so what I, what I said is, how, I, I had a note written down that said, how am I going to approach this? And so what I want to do is I want to draw this hard one to understand with the things that we've seen before. Daniel, as I said in chapter 7, or chapter, what, yeah, 7, 8, 9, is he's been teaching us how to read prophecy. He's been showing us what that looks like, and what we're going to see today is, he's, is we're, we're going to put that to the test. So I want to draw these all together. Now, as I said, these, these verses are the most contentious. There are multiple interpretations of them. So if you have one and you really like it, that's probably fine. It's, you know, it's hard to come up with something new on this because there are so many interpretations. I, I was joking with uh, Dan this, uh, this week. I said, you know, I've got this novel approach, but I don't think it's brand new because somebody surely has said it so far. Um, and I got that because St. Jerome, he was a, a fifth century um, a man, a contemporary of Augustine. He is the guy that translated the Bible into Latin, what we call the Vulgate today, right? So Augustine wrote, I mean, um, uh, Jerome wrote a commentary on Daniel, and when he gets to these verses, the big coward said, it is unwise to disagree with so many godly and wise men throughout church history. Therefore, I'm going to list the nine interpretations and leave it up to the reader to figure out. <laughs> you big coward. That was in the fifth century. How many more interpretations have we got since then? So um, I, I'm, I'm not going to try to wrestle with them. I'm, I'm going to spare you all going through all the different options because we'd be here for a month. And instead, I'm just going to take the approach that I, I think is right. I'm going to compare scripture with scripture. I want to go with what Daniel has been teaching us. So with that, uh, let's dive into the hardest, some of the hardest verses in the Bible because <laughs> it's easy. Um, so the, the part begins with a report of his prayer. Now, you remember last week we looked at Daniel's prayer. We spent a lot of time on that. And while he was speaking and praying, um, God sent an angel. God sent Gabriel to him again. We'd seen Gabriel earlier, but he comes to him at the time of the evening sacrifice, and he explains to Daniel what's going on. But what he says is, um, what we saw last week is Daniel prayed, right? But Gabriel's answer is, therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. That's the answer to the prayer. Well, Daniel didn't have a vision. So which vision is Gabriel referring to? Well, I think Daniel gives us a hint because in verse 21 he says, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at first. So I think Daniel is being reminded of that vision and given an interpretation. And so that, that's the kind of way I'm going to approach this. So to paraphrase Robert Frost here, the 70 weeks takes up the theme where the visions of the beast in chapter 7 and 8 laid it down. That, that's my approach to it. Um, so here's, here's what, that, what it says. Uh, verse 24. This is the interpretation, the explanation of the vision. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring, into ever, or to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So 70 weeks, what does that mean? Well, if you take it literally, it's about a year and four months. And that certainly is not enough time for the events to take place that we're going to see take place. So most interpreters say, well, it's not 70 weeks literally. It's 70 weeks, not of days, but of years. So that would be 490 years worth of time. Um, the problem is we still don't have enough time. It still doesn't work. 
So if you take the beginning of the 490 years and you pin it to something like a decree going out to rebuild Jerusalem, the problem is it ends around 55 BC, which nothing was going on. Jesus hadn't been born yet. The, none of the other things happened. So some people pin the other end. They go, okay, let's pin the end of the 490 years and work our way backwards. So they pin it to Jesus' birth or his resurrection or ascension or something like that, and they count backwards. And the problem with that is the vision begins well after Jerusalem has been rebuilt or is in the process of being rebuilt. So you can't get the 490 years to stretch and fit. So what some people do is go, ah, but there's a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. And so what happens is the 69 weeks line up really nice, and then something happens, and then we'll get to the 70th week in the future. That just doesn't seem to rise out of the text to me to tell me that there's a gap. It, it seems to flow. So how do we resolve this? What do we do with 70 weeks? Well, if we've learned anything from Daniel, we've learned in visions, chronology is not that important. We got terms like time, times, and half a time. We got terms like a season and a time. And how long is that? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Time isn't the issue. The sequence is the issue, but the time is not really the issue. So what I'm going to do is propose we take a different tack with this. And instead of trying to make 490 years fit somehow, let's forget that. Let's say that instead of 490 years, it is 7 times 10 times 7. Right, 70 weeks. So seven is this picture of um, perfection, of, of completion. And so that's completion or, or fullness times 10. 10 is this idea of, of an appropriate amount, a large amount, times seven. So instead of looking at it as, as 490 years, what if we just say these are specific clumps of, of events that are going to lead us to this place? And we'll see that the time doesn't really matter at that point. So here's what we get instead. During these 70 weeks, there are four things that have to happen. So the first one, in the seven weeks, Jerusalem will be rebuilt and a prince will come. That's the first seven weeks. Then the next 62 weeks, Jerusalem has been built, but it's in a time of trouble. There's just a lot going on in there. Then after the 62 weeks, um, an anointed one will be cut off and deserted. And, and that begins the last week. Now, that last week is very full. There's a lot going on. Jerusalem will now be destroyed. A strong covenant will be made. Sacrifices and offerings will be cut off. And the one who makes desolation will come and be destroyed. So let's take a look at each one of these weeks and see what's going on, see if we can understand what these events are. So the first one is um, in the first part of verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So the word going out to rebuild Jerusalem came from Cyrus. Uh, Ezra, right at the beginning of Ezra, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord, uh, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia, so that he might make a proclamation throughout all kingdoms and also put in writing, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is among all of you, his people, 
May his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So that's pretty clear. That's the announcement. That's Cyrus. Now, if you remember how chapter 9 began, it began in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by descent. And what I said last week is, as far as I can tell, Darius and Cyrus are actually the same person. And the explanation for that was, Darius is a Mede by descent. Cyrus is a king of Persia. So how can they be the same person if one's a Mede and one's a Persian? Well, the answer comes right there in chapter uh, 9, verse 1. Um, Darius is a Mede by descent, the son of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is a Persian name. So Darius is a man of mixed race, mixed nationality. Well, we know from the historical records that Cyrus is too. So can't really camp on this and say that, you know, this is for sure, but I think it's the same person. If that's the case, then Daniel's prayer is answered within a year. Because this is the first year of Darius, it's, it, and, and the decree goes out in the first year of Cyrus that the, the wall be rebuilt. And then what you see in Ezra and Nehemiah is they go and they rebuild it. So um, the complication comes when you say, but he's only been given the, the um, commission to build the temple. Well, can you imagine a city in desolate ruins, right? The city is, is just utterly ruined, and they're going to go and spend a whole bunch of time and money building this beautiful temple right in the middle of the rubble. It doesn't make any sense. So Isaiah, when he prophesied about Cyrus in chapter 44, verse 28, he says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So Cyrus, the way God interpreted it is, Cyrus is not just saying go build the temple, he's saying rebuild the city. So I think that's what's going on. So then who is the anointed prince there? Would come if the beginning of the seven weeks is the rebuilding or the it, the command to rebuild Jerusalem. Who's the the anointed prince? Well, be careful here because some of the Bible translations make the mistake of translating translating anointed as Messiah, and that's not the idea here. The word is Messiah in Hebrew, but that's not the idea. When we think of Messiah, we think of Jesus. This can't be Jesus. That's seven weeks is not appropriate for his his coming. So who is he? Well, the best guess is probably either Ezra or Nehemiah, one of the two, because they're attached to, involved in that first work, which is rebuilding the temple in, in Jerusalem, rebuilding Jerusalem. Um, Nehemiah was certainly a prince. The, the word for prince is, is uh, nagid, which is ruler or leader, can be talking about military commanders. Nehemiah fits that bill, but he was never anointed. So I think the better bet is to say it's probably speaking of Ezra. Ezra is a priest, and the priests are anointed. And also priests are in um, a few places referred to as Nagid, rulers, leaders. So that's probably what's going on. There's our first seven weeks. So the first seven weeks is all about the establishment and rebuilding of Jerusalem. What comes next? The second half of verse 25. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled times. And that's exactly what happened. Jerusalem never saw peace during this time. After it was rebuilt, there was constant conflict there. There were people coming and going. And as a matter of fact, if we look at Daniel's images that he's shown us so far, 
The Medes and the Persians ruled while Jerusalem is being rebuilt, and then they get replaced by the Greeks, and the Greeks come and they take over, and then the Greeks get taken over by the Romans, and the Romans rule, and it's just, it's constant chaos. Look through history. Um, in the Apocrypha, read the book of Maccabees, and you'll get a part of that history. If you want to look at other historical books, uh, Josephus talks about this period as well. It was troubled times. So the next 62 weeks is about 525 years worth of really bad times for that city. So what comes at the end of that 62 weeks? Um, after that 525 years, the first part of verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. This is almost universally accepted as Jesus and his crucifixion. And this one would be actually correct to uh, translate anointed as the Messiah. Because notice it doesn't say an anointed one. Actually, most of the Bible translations say the anointed one or the Messiah. There's no prince or anything. Jesus is not like one of these guys who's a ruler. He is the Messiah, the fulfillment, the actual person who comes. And, it, and he is cut off. Um, that word for cut off there is actually the word that's used to make a covenant to cut a covenant. And Isaiah refers to this, and he says that the suffering servant will be cut off, Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So Jesus was the anointed one, the ultimate, the, the final fulfillment of the anointed one. He was cut off. And then it says, he shall be cut off and he shall have nothing. What did Jesus have on the cross? He had, he, he, he had nothing. His friends had deserted him. His disciples fled. When he's hanging on the cross, he looks to his mother and says, behold your son. He gives his mother away. And then the most ultimate, the, the, the highest point of, of having nothing his father, his eternal father, turns away and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus experienced more than any man in history having nothing. He experienced that. So this is probably talking about Jesus. This is the beginning of the final week. And so what comes after this then is this moment, he, he has nothing, he's cut off, 26b, the second part of the verse, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and, the, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. There's a bunch of ways that people interpret this. I think the best one is to say, this is the destruction of Jerusalem. It, it makes the most sense. It comes right after Jesus' crucifixion, and Jesus had predicted that this was going to happen. It happens within 40 years of his crucifixion. What happened was the Roman legions surrounded the city. The city was in revolt. They were, they were trying to throw off Roman rule. The, the Roman legions surrounded the city and stopped. And when the signal was given for them to invade, they swept in literally like a flood, just ran straight into the city, killing anybody standing in front of them, didn't matter where they were, going through houses, slaughtering people. They tore down the walls of Jerusalem. They flattened the sanctuary. They destroyed the temple. And so that sounds most like what is being described here. It would happen very quickly, and that's exactly what had happened. 
So Jesus had predicted this. He had told his disciples, this is in, in Matthew 24, a little bit of a long uh, read, but stick with me. So Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15, Jesus said, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, there's our connection, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea fly, flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take uh, what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women are, who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For, when there will be, for, there, I'm sorry, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never shall be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So you remember in chapter 7, we talked about Antiochus. and Or no, chapter 8, we talked about Antiochus. And he was a, a picture, a foreshadowing of the Antichrists that would come. And then the ultimate Antichrist that would come. Listen to what Jesus continues saying. He goes on. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See how I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will, be coming, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So that first part, that destruction that's promised, that is talking about Jesus' return. Or I mean, uh, uh, it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is picturing and looking forward to Jesus' return. So then who is the prince of the people that's mentioned at the beginning? Well, the prince or the leader it could be the emperor, um, the Roman emperor Vespian, Vespasian, Vespasian, Vespasian. I, practice that this morning and I get into the pulpit and my mouth turns to mush. Um, or it could be the general that he sent in Titus, the prince. But it's the people of the prince or the troops of this prince that, that are being discussed. And so it seems like this is talking about that event. So what comes after that then? 27a, the beginning of chapter, or verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half the week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. So we're now in the final week. Um, who's he? Who is he? Typically, you would go, well, who were we just talking about? Well, we were talking about Titus or Vespian, Vespasian, Vespasian, the Roman emperor at the time. Um, but that doesn't work. That won't fit because while they did put an end technically to sacrifices and offerings, they made no covenant with anybody. They just stormed in and did what they were going to do. So that doesn't work. Plus, the, what's being discussed there is not that prince, but the people of that prince. And the people certainly didn't make a strong covenant, and it's he. So that doesn't work. We have to go one, one back. Well, who was right before that? Jesus at the cross. And Jesus at the cross indeed did make a very strong covenant. The, the, the book of uh, Jeremiah says that this covenant is unbreakable. Unlike the covenant that I made with your fathers, this one is made differently. It can't be broken. It rests entirely on Jesus' blood. It rests on that event of the cross. That is our righteousness. That is the securing of our salvation. 
That is what the strong covenant is, is, is made in Christ's blood. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And part of that is, this is the cup of my covenant, or this is the cup of my blood, the new covenant. That's the picture of it. So that's the strong covenant that he makes. Now, people interpret this very differently, and there's a lot of different understandings of this. They either look backwards and say it was at 70 AD or look forward to the, the coming Antichrist. But I don't think it fits really well here. I think the, the better fit is that it's Jesus. So what does he mean then when he says, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offerings? Um, beginning with that word half a week. Remember, we're not so fussy about timelines here because the period that we're talking about actually covers, well, so far, 2021 and counting. So half of a week doesn't mean, you know, this exact midpoint or something. What he's talking about there, I think, is, is the beginning of this period is the birth and, and the uh, um, up raising up of Jesus and his coming and his teaching, and then the crucifixion is that moment. At his crucifixion, he put an end to offerings and sacrifices, didn't he? Are we going to cut open a lamb this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper? He did that. He, he, the book of Hebrews is explicit. He, he ended that. He is the ultimate sacrifice. And so we don't have that anymore. We don't need that anymore. So that second week, that, that, half, or that last week, the, the second half of the week, there's no more sacrifices. There is one sacrifice that is done, and it's sufficient for everybody. And so that's the end of it. That's the other part of this, is it says that he will make a strong covenant with many and, and that's one of the ways that the New Testament talks about Jesus' covenant, his, his sacrifice, his coming and his dying is, is with many. I'm not going to go through all of those because there's just too much of it. Um, just sum up one, uh, Matthew 26, verse 27. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is, the, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So I think that, that kind of firms up that connection. I think that makes it clearer that that's talking about Jesus, or at least it does for me. If you don't agree, that's fine. It's, it's not a hill we're, we need to die on. So the last half of 27, the last, actually the last bit of the, the chapter, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. So this is, I think, looking to the very end, looking to the, the end days. Remember, we talked about Antiochus. We said he was brutal. He was horrible to the Jews, but he prefigured someone who was going to come. He, he, he was like a small example of one who would, who would arrive later. And we called him in the New Testament the beast or the Antichrist. And there were many Antichrists, but there's one coming. There's the beast. There's the final one that's going to come. I think that's what's being spoken of here because it describes what that beast is going to do in the church. He's going to grind down the saints. He's going to make desolation. He's going to try to gut the church from the inside. And so this is that person that Paul calls the man of lawlessness. But he's going to come and he's going to make desolate. He's going to wage war against the church and it's going to be brutal. Until, until the decreed end is poured out on him. What was the decreed end? Do you remember from chapter 7? In chapter 7, we got a picture of these four different beasts, and the last one Daniel couldn't even describe. And out of that beast pops ten horns, and one of those two, or three of those horns got uprooted by a little horn. And that little horn, we said, was the beast at the end. 
What destroyed him, what brought him down was when the one like the Son of Man comes on the clouds of glory, when judgment is set up. And so the, the decree is poured out on him. That's when Jesus returns. And then is the end of the desolator. So I think that's the picture that we're seeing here. Is this, this one more time we're sketching out redemptive history once again. So this raises to me two questions. Why did, God Dan, why did God tell Daniel this, and thereby us? And why did he tell him that in this way? Couldn't he have just said, well, look, the Medo-Persians are going to come, and then Alexander the Great, and then the Romans. And why, why tell it four times with expanding clarity and, and focusing on different sections? Why tell it four times, and then why tell it in these visions? So let me take the last question first. Why tell it this way? Because the prophecy is sealed. That's, that's something that's come up a couple of times. This prophecy is sealed. And when it means sealed, it doesn't mean a seal of authenticity or like a, a, a public notary seal saying this is legit. Uh, the word there is more like sealing a jar. This, this prophecy is closed up. Well, what does it mean closed up? I mean, why are we wasting our time if it's closed up? Because it's not closed up to us. It's, it's closed up to those outside. So Daniel, as he's praying, has an angel fly in to tell him the meaning. He has an angel come and explain it to him. It's not sealed up to him. It's not sealed up to God's people. We have, like I prayed this morning, we have the Holy Spirit to come. We don't need an angel to fly in here and say, hey, Tim, I got it. Let me explain it to you. We've got the completed scripture. We've got the Holy Spirit. So we can understand that. So why did God tell it this way? So that we would understand it. Now, we I just said this is the most divisive, most over-interpreted and everything. So there's not 100% clarity. There, there isn't in anything because we're human beings and we don't do it that way. But we get it. We get the general idea. We understand the flow of redemptive history. But what about those outside? There are those for whom this prophecy is not intended to be clear. It is intended to be confusing. It is intended to leave them with a lot of questions. Jesus himself said this. Mark chapter 4, verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So God is, is saying, look, I, I give it to you this way on purpose. It's not that visions are inherently crazy, because... Paul saw a man from Macedonia come and say, help me. That was a pretty clear vision. It wasn't mysterious at all. It's God did it this way because he doesn't want those outside to get it, but he wants those inside to get it. He, he did it that way. So then, why does he tell us this four times in, in four different ways and repeat it over and over again? Why would he do it that, that way? Well, I think the answer comes right out of chapter 9. According to Gabriel... God gave him this answer because you are greatly loved. He, he gave Daniel the answer out of love. So the answer was not, now go figure out those visions. It's, I'm going to explain them to you one more time. Because I love you. So God's love for us does many things. There's just a whole bunch. But I want to focus in on one application that I think kind of explains what, what's going on here. God loves us, and so according to Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to adoption as sons. His love predestined us to adoption as sons. 
So what does that adoption look like? What does that predestined adoption look like? Paul explains in Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that they might be, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God wants us to know that so that we can be like his son and like his son we can endure. But why put us through that? Why not just snuff out Antiochus before he becomes a problem? Why not wipe out uh, Domitian before he starts torturing the church? Why not eradicate the Spanish Inquisition before they get in trouble? Why not wipe out Mao Zedong before he, he tortures people or Stalin? Or why is there Boko Haram today? Why not just do it that way, God? If you love us, well, the answer comes in, in the cross, right in the middle of our message. Did he do that to his son? Did he say, Jesus, you know what? I'll just jetpack you out of here. The way to that kingdom is through suffering. It's not pointless. It's difficult, but it's not pointless. The picture here is history is not barreling down the freeway, full throttle with nobody at the wheel. God has shown through these visions over and over again that he's in control of these events. They're measured. They're in his hands. He knows where they're coming. He's going to set a time on them. But still, that freeway is littered with some very bad, very powerful, very determined people who are capable of some pretty horrible things. They, they have and they will. So either they don't know or they don't care or they don't believe God is steering the course of history and therefore they will remove anyone who stands in their way through death, dismemberment, or dominion, uh, domination. What we've seen over and over again is, is this played out in human history. It just is the way people behave. So God is looking through human history saying, I'm taking it to my appointed end, and I'm not going to derail the whole thing. I know the road ahead of me, and I'm going to navigate it exactly the way it needs to be navigated. So these earthly kingdoms are terrifying. They are really horrific. Look at Nebuchadnezzar in, in chapter 3 with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They oppose him. They say, I'm not bowing down to your idol, and he loses his mind. He has people throw them in a fiery furnace, and some of his best troops die trying to kill these people. These are bad dudes. This history is terrifying. But don't forget the other end of that, that image that we got in chapter 2. A head of gold, chest of silver, belly of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of clay and iron. And then a rock that no hand carved comes out of a mountain and comes in, and it strikes those feet. And when it strikes the feet, the feet don't just shatter. The whole image shatters, turns to dust, and is blown away. And that rock then begins to expand and fill and consume the whole earth. So as terrifying as these earthly kingdoms are, as horrifying as they can be, there is an appointed end for them. And so what do you want? Do you want to be in the kingdom? Do you want to capitulate now and avoid maybe some of the suffering? Or have you set your eyes on that kingdom that is coming? That kingdom we sang about so beautifully this morning that every, God himself comes, away, comes and dabs away the tears in your eyes. That, that new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven that no bad thing comes into. Is, is it worth enduring in this, this time of these earthly kingdoms? Is it worth enduring so that we gain that at the end or do we skip and we just go, oh, well, you know, I'll give in so I don't have problems now. I'll, I'll worry about the future in the future. 
consider, uh, this is just briefly from uh, Revelation 3 and 4, consider some of the promises that were extended to us. If we endure, right? So the, the way John says it is those who overcome. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Adam and Eve were denied that. We get it. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death. You'll be hurt by the first one, but not by the second one. The one who conquers and who, who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. How would you like to rule with Jesus? If you don't like the way the kingdoms are doing it now, how would you like to replace them? And finally, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall never go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, and my own new name. How does that sound compared to the persecution, the difficulty that we're going to face, that we will face, that we do face. Isn't it worth investing that in the heavens, looking forward to that? I think that's what Daniel is doing for us, is he's picturing it in a graphic way to make us feel, not just hear and understand, but to feel the terror of these nations. They're a ravaging lion. They're, they're a bear. They're a, a leopard that can fly. They're a goat that doesn't touch the ground because it moves so quickly. These are terrifying things. We're supposed to feel them. But at the same time, we're reminded over and over again, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen, and then I will destroy them. It's, it's coming. And so I think the intention here is for us to remember our ultimate allegiance is to that kingdom that will come. And to that end, we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Lord, the nations rise and the nations fall because you said they would. And kings arise and they rule and they accomplish your purposes and then you judge them because they exceeded their authority. They were cruel and mean. They set themselves up as rulers. And Lord, we've seen that pattern throughout history over and over again. More people than we can care to even announce. And yet, the scripture warns us there's one coming. There is an antichrist. There is this one who will show up and be really be horrible to your church. Lord, thank you for that warning that we may hang on to, that we may conquer, as, as John told us in Revelation. Endure. Walk through that difficulty because we know on the other side is the lamb who was slain, who is worthy to open the scrolls. And that's the, the ultimate destination we want to arrive at. Lord, fill our hearts with enough of a vision of our time with Jesus that we can endure the difficulties we face today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. There's a very clear concept that runs throughout the Bible. God is worthy of all praise and worship. The prophet Amos tells us, 
He who made the Pleiades and Orion and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Chapter 5, verse 8. Further, God demands that he be worshipped in ways that are acceptable to him. As Moses instructs Aaron in Leviticus 10.3, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. Our worship and praise of him are to be offered from a clear recognition of who he is, of faith in him as the maker of everything that has been made, and with the understanding that everything he does is for his own glory and worship. God provides for his own worship. David declares in Psalm 145, All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. As we heard a few weeks ago, Daniel refers to David's psalm when he tells Nebuchadnezzar while interpreting the king's dream of the tree, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And later in that same chapter, Nebuchadnezzar himself repeats the psalm and acknowledges God's sovereignty. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. The word worship comes from the Old English word wereth and refers to someone who is worthy of recognition. In the Old Testament, the picture we get from the words translated as worship is that of bowing before one who is worthy. The Greek word used in the New Testament, pros proskunio, presents us with images of kneeling in honor or even, even prostrating oneself and kissing the ground before the person who is uh, being honored. As Moses said, we are to worship God's holiness and glory, and God provides for this worship. At the end of his reign, David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people? That we should be able to give as generously as this. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and it all belongs to you. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 16. David makes it clear that though we may think that we are praising and worshiping God, it is actually God himself who has established the basis for that praise and worship 
as well as provided the means by which we can praise and worship him. This idea of God providing for his own worship really leapt out at me recently in light of our current situation here at Trinity. Our, worship, our leader of worship and his wife have been called to serve at another church. We are all experiencing many conflicting feelings about this. Ultimately, however, we have confidence in the fact that God provides for his own worship. As we seek to worship and praise him according to his majesty, his holiness, and his faithfulness, we can have faith that he will provide the basis for us to continue to worship him and to speak of the glory of his kingdom, as we were told in Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. One of the ways in which we declare our faith in God and his son, Jesus Christ, is by observing the Lord's Supper. We are doing it a bit differently now. What has not changed is that we practice an open table. So anyone who is a true believer in the divinity of Jesus, his substitutionary atonement for us, his bodily resurrection, and his eternal sovereignty is welcome to join in this act of worship regardless of church membership. What has changed is that I'm going to ask all of you to come forward and pick up one of these cute little self-contained packages that hold the elements of the meal. So, if you will please come up the center aisle, take one, and then circle back around to the sides, back to your seats. We will, we will worship through communion. that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you, as you drink it in remembrance of me.
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you, Steve. I like how you said, Tim, that, you know, God at any point could have just wiped it all out. The beast, all of these things. And I wonder if there isn't something in the fact that God did it through meekness and through love that, that does maybe two things. One, it's really offensive to the enemy, right? I mean, God could come in and just wipe him out, but instead he, he does it through Jesus Christ, through sacrifice, through love. And I think that also shows something about his character as well. Um, Hebrews 9 says, He entered, speaking of Christ, once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. If you're able to stand, let's respond with there's a reason. thank you for giving us your son to redeem us, for leaving your spirit to strengthen us. We pray, Lord, that we would be those who would endure through trials that you have promised will come. Lord, but as sure as your promise of trials, 
your promise of eternal salvation and an eternal kingdom and eternal joy and eternal peace are all true. And so, Lord, we look forward to those days. And we pray this in Christ's name.